Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. Security. What is worth more, art or life? Is it worth more than food? Worth more than justice? Are you more concerned about the protection of a painting or the protection of our planet and people? Oy vey. That was a clip of an incident most of you are probably familiar with. A couple of young climate activists throwing tomato soup on Van Gogh's sunflowers in the National Gallery in London. Then, of course, they glued themselves to the wall. (laughs) I love the guy yelling, Security! We have a (laughs) counterproductive Generation Z publicity stunt! Here at Climavores, we love the climate, but we do find ourselves in the anti-soup-throwing camp. And we feel the same way about mashed potato throwing. So the paintings in question were not damaged, so let's be clear about that. But we don't think this is the way to persuade the public of the righteousness of your cause. What, you don't remember when Martin Luther King inspired the nation with his famous ineffectual act of performative vandalism from a Birmingham museum? No, no, I don't remember that. <laughs> and, but obviously, look, the point of this stunt was to call attention to the climate crisis, and we're in favor of that. But this was just so silly, and I think most people's reaction was just stop. In fairness, while people got pretty angry about the soup, I think both of us can agree it wasn't nearly as bad as this copycat stunt in a grocery store. Vegan campaigners have turned against an animal rights group after its members poured litres of milk on the floor of a high-end London department store. Yes, Animal Rebellion caused outrage with the protest in Harrods, which they say highlights the environmental impact of the dairy industry. But vegan campaigners say they embarrassed the cause. Okay, that one really got to me. We care about the climate, so let's waste some food and leave some low-wage workers to clean up after us. And don't forget the poor cows that had to pump all that milk for nothing. Not to mention all the land and water and feed that went to producing all that milk for nothing. It's just a totally incoherent protest, right? The climate crisis is terrible. Dairies are making it worse. So let's waste a bunch of high-emissions milk so those dairies will have to make even more high-emissions milk. It just doesn't make sense. Climate change is a catastrophe, and to prove how desperately we want to solve it, we're going to make it worse. Yeah, that's just awesome. And I'm sure that their hearts are in the right place. They think this is important just the way we do. But this is a lousy message. But I don't think we can have an entire episode beating up on some kids, do you? Wait a minute. Weren't you the one who suggested they should be left alone in the dark, glued to the wall? (laughs) Yeah, that, that was totally me. But it's because I don't think that this kind of protest is particularly useful. And I think it could alienate people. And the way to prevent it is to starve it of oxygen. And if I had been the museum director, I would have closed the gallery, turned out the lights, and just emptied the place out and left them there, as you said, alone in the dark. I'd give them water after a while, and I'd unglue them when they really had to pee. 
Look, there's obviously been a huge backlash to these stunts, but there's also been an interesting backlash to the backlash. A lot of folks in the climate movement saying, hey, if you're going to get pissed, get pissed at the oil companies and agribusinesses that are causing this mess, not these idealistic young people trying to do something about it. And there's definitely something to that. Okay, yeah, it's just a publicity stunt, but it sure got publicity. They got what? Last I checked, it was like 15 million hits on YouTube. Mission accomplished, I guess. I I do think there's a natural tension between climate wonks like us and climate activists like those kids. And I can see how it must be annoying to the doers when us thinkers are always like, something must be done. (laughs) And then we're like, but we don't like how you're doing it, right? Must you doers be so loud and obnoxious and confrontational, right? It's like we want them to transform the system and inspire climate action without bothering people. It's a little harder than it sounds, maybe. Okay, wait a second, Mike. Do I actually hear you putting yourself in somebody else's shoes? (laughs) Well, look, I've written a lot about how those of us who recognize the emergency we tend to get uncomfortable with the sirens, right? We're reporters, we're analysts, we're a little uncomfortable with screaming and emotion. But I do think we have to admit that reporting and analysis aren't going to solve the climate crisis. That's true. And honestly, as as we keep discussing, it's not like our facts and logic are persuading the public of anything. That said, I do want to push back a little bit against this how dare you mentality that we've seen in the climate movement, where any criticism of the soup throwers or the milk dumpers, or for that matter, even the Green New Deal, it's inherently out of bounds. Look, I personally believe climate activism is really important. And if you do believe that, then it really matters whether climate activists are being helpful or not. That's the kind of thing that us thinkers ought to be thinking about. And that sounds like something we could do an episode about, especially because we're in the food corner of this climate conversation. And changing hearts and minds is going to be absolutely vital because reducing emissions is going to depend on persuading individuals one by one to eat climate friendlier diets. It's not just about how many clicks you get on YouTube. It turns out there's some science about activism and what works. And you know how we feel about science. So in this episode, we're going to take climate activism seriously. We're not just going to cry over spilt milk. Oh, Mike, no soup for you. I'm Tamar Haspel. And I'm Michael Grunwald. And this is Climavores, a show about eating on a changing climate. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you by Buffalo Trace Distillery. Powerful yet smooth. Contained but never tame. Proudly going their own way, but never going alone. This is the spirit inside Buffalo Trace bourbon. Made at Buffalo Trace Distillery. The world's most award-winning distillery. 
Buffalo Trace is always perfectly untamed. Distilled, aged, and bottled by Buffalo Trace Distillery. Franklin County, Kentucky. 90 proof. 45% alcohol by volume. Learn more at buffalotracedistillery.com. Please drink responsibly. Imagine a place of your own in your name. A place where all your stuff is. Where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. I'd like to make one thing perfectly clear. We did no damage to the painting whatsoever. We never, ever would have considered doing it if we didn't know that it was behind glass and that we wouldn't do any damage. I recognise that it looks like a slightly ridiculous action. I agree, it is ridiculous. But we're not asking the question, should everybody be throwing soup on paintings? We're, what we're doing is getting the conversation going so we can ask the questions that matter. Okay, I would say it's not great when you have to start out by admitting that what you did was ridiculous. But in fairness, <laughs> she wants people to be talking about her stuff. We're talking about her stuff. We're certainly talking about her stuff. And, okay, one of the things that stood out at me when I watched that clip was that she is having the time of her life. This is fun. This was her 15 minutes. And it, there's a part of me that's like, man, I wish I was that good at getting attention. I'd sell a lot more books. <laughs> right. Well, to her credit, she was very upfront that her goal in this was attention. But I think we do have to ask a little bit, like, to what end? Right. right. If uh, if the ultimate goal is getting the world to stop using oil and presumably the ultimate, ultimate goal is to fix the climate crisis, you know, how exactly does the soup translate into that? Um, I think, yeah, we get it. She wants to start a conversation. Um, but so far, I feel it feels like most of the conversation has been about about them, the, you know, the, the woman in pink hair who threw soup on the Van Gogh. And I do think we, like, we need to think a little bit about, you know, what are the goals? What's the mission? You know, what is the audience? Who are you trying to talk to? And really, what's the theory of change? How does that audience then get you what you want? And, you know, this is something that people study. And they try and figure out whether extreme actions like this actually end up attracting people to the cause or repelling people from the cause. And, you know, there was a paper written about this a couple of years ago, and I want to read a, a short excerpt. This is actually just from, from the abstract. And the lead author was a guy named Matthew Feinberg at the University of Toronto. And what he said was, Across six experiments, participants indicated less support for social movements that used more extreme protest actions. In five of six studies, negative reactions to extreme protest actions also led participants to support the movement's central cause less, and those effects were largely independent of individuals' prior ideology or views on the issue. Now, since this is exactly the thing Matthew Feinberg studied. I sent him an email and asked him if he had thoughts about this particular incident. And this is what he told me. He said, 
One, they will get a lot of attention, especially in the media. And two, they will reduce the general public's support for the activists and in their cause. So he is in the camp that says that this is going to be counterproductive. This is going to reduce support for climate action. And he added something interesting, and I think it's worth noting, that uh, he said that based on the psych literature on, quote-unquote, the sacred one key way to trigger moral outrage is to desecrate something people hold as sacred. So throwing food at works of art that are considered sacred, such as Van Gogh's sunflowers, will certainly trigger moral outrage. And I think that that happens regardless of whether the painting was actually damaged. Because, you know, you're talking about people's emotions here. And when they see somebody throwing the can of soup at the painting, that outrage that he's talking about is going to be triggered regardless of whether there was actually damage done. And of course, he's not the only scientist. Actually, a co-author on that same paper is uh, a guy named Rob Willer on uh, at Stanford. And he actually weighed in on this on Twitter. And I sent him an email. He referred me to his Twitter stream. And this is what he said. I think these art desecration tactics are exactly the sort of protest behaviors that lead observers to view the activists as extreme and unreasonable, alienating observers and potentially reducing support for their cause. So he's in Feinberg's camp. They think that this particular action is more likely to repel people than attract people. But a third scientist, Dana Fisher also weighed in, and I think she was less persuaded. She acknowledged that the whole point of this was that so people would talk about this, but uh, she doesn't think that this will necessarily turn people away. Um, so she was much less sure that this is 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 going to repel people. And I think you know the message here is that you know you can run studies that try to get to the bottom of this. But in the real world, there's so many moving parts to people's attitudes. Things like, you know, polarization going in. Are things in the United States going to be different from the situation in the UK? Because here in the United States, we've already sort of decided whether we think climate change is important. And is this just going to entrench people? Or is it going to make people you know, think more about this. I would just point out that this is the state of the science about a very narrow question, Sure. right? Which is, you know, what is the general public's reaction going to be but to these sort of extreme, you know, stunts, call them, or, well, you know, protests? And, uh, and in fairness to, you know, to these activists, I mean, I think one thing they would say is, you know, We've tried marching and the media doesn't cover that anymore, that in 2022, you know, you've got to do something extreme if you want to get your message out and uh, you got to throw soup on the art. Um, and then then another point I would make is that, uh, is that, again, just convincing the general public or what the general public thinks of your action or even of your issue is not necessarily the most important thing. Although in this case, it was specifically what they said they, were, they, said they wanted. They wanted everyone talking. They got it. They got it. And I think, you know, maybe this kind of activism has really sort of accelerated in the age of social media because you do something like this and it's pretty clear that you can be a social media sensation. 
Um, and, you know, the old school, you know, people chaining themselves to trees, they had to d- depend on old school media to get the story out. And so in this case, because social media is a factor, the splashier the better, because then more people talk. But one of the things about this that I wonder about is that does this sort of shift people's perspective? If you have these sort of extreme kinds of activism, does other kind of activism now start to seem normal? So it's it's sort of a version of the Overton window. Your Overton window. Yeah, my Overton window. <laughs> and so it, you know, as we get immersed in an environment where these things happen, it changes our perspective of other things. And, you know, it's weird. As we're talking about it, I find my sympathy for these protesters to sort of be ticking up just a little bit. Well, and I, I do think that those of us who are, you know, the, the nerdy dorks who, you know, just traffic in facts. Um, I do think we have to remember, right, that you don't get gay marriage without Stonewall, right? That there are always going to be, you know, the sort of activists at the tip of the sphere, the people who are ahead, and and you know, and maybe they're going to be more radical, and we might not agree with them about about everything. You know, the question is, are they they breaking down barriers? Are they leading to some kind of positive movement in society? One thing, though, I fear with, you know, this is a perfect example, you know, this this woman who's out there saying, like, yes, we know what we're doing is ridiculous, um, but we're, we want people talking about climate. My fear is that for people who don't follow climate every day like we do, mm-hmm. it sort of makes them think, oh, okay, you know, Caring about climate is a hobby for ridiculous people. You know, it doesn't it doesn't make the moderates look moderate compared to the radicals. It makes the moderates look radical because they're associated with a radical cause. And and again, you know, so much of this is kind of guesswork and dependent on all kinds of things that we can't control for. And you know, in the case of the scientists, it's educated guesswork. But still, we're trying to extrapolate from studies that are very limited to a situation that is very specific. And, and I think it's certainly feasible that, that that interpretation is right. And also, I think, I don't know, there's a million things that could, could happen. I think that there actually is something really appealing about those young people and if young people are looking at that and saying, hey, this is really appealing and also it looks really good on your CV, um, maybe this it does attract more people to this sort of wing of, of the cause. And I want to note that, you know, listening to her talk, she's obviously very smart. And so maybe the next thing she does is going to be more on point. And maybe the people that she recruits by doing this kind of thing, are going to direct their protests in ways that that are a little more targeted and don't have the off-putting qualities that this particular stunt did. Well, that's, that's really interesting because so we've been talking about the goal, right? The goal of all this was clearly like get people talking. Okay, mission accomplished. But we've sort of been assuming that the audience was everyone. And to some extent... 
The audience is always everyone, especially when you got 15 million hits on YouTube. You can't control that. But it wasn't necessarily their target audience. And you mentioned the idea that maybe she's talking to her fellow young people to try to get them to join a movement like like Greta Thunberg did. I I saw that uh, one of the Getty heiresses just gave her group a million dollars. And maybe that's the, uh, right? Maybe that's part of the audience. That's a win any way you slice it. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But this idea that, you know, we think, oh gosh, that's all off-putting. Um, well, maybe they don't care so much if they're off-putting. She says she knows what she's doing is ridiculous, um, but they're building an army that they can use to shut down bridges like the civil rights movement did. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think activists have to, like, they have a responsibility. They have to understand that everybody hears them. But us wonks, we have to understand that they're not necessarily talking to everyone, and that can have a, a real impact. You look at like the Sunrise Movement, which God knows I have you know a million bones to pick with the Sunrise Movement here in the United States. Um, but like they did that sit-in in Nancy Pelosi's office, and a lot of people like me kind of were like, "Oh, that's obnoxious." You know, first of all, like. Nancy Pelosi's on your side. Why are you? Why aren't you attacking the Republicans? Um, you know, why are you shutting down somebody who actually cares about the climate, et cetera, et cetera? They did the same. They did those protests at Joe Manchin's houseboat. Remember that? Where and everybody was kind of like, "We need Joe Manchin's vote. Why are you alienating? Why are you calling him a coal baron? We we he need we need him to pretend he's a climate activist just for a couple of weeks." Um, and again, like you know, people like us were saying, "Really? Is that?" You you know, isn't that a little crazy? You know, why are you blaming the Democrats? Why are you antagonizing people whose votes you need? Why are you giving Joe Biden, they gave his plan an F minus, which was obviously ridiculous. But they had very specific goals. And their goals was to sort of raise the salience of climate as an issue for leading Democrats. And I think, you you know, those of us who criticize them and still criticize some of the things they do have to say, Democrats clearly took climate seriously. So, you know, at some level, maybe it worked. I have this, I guess, affection for people who feel this strongly about an issue that I care deeply about, and they want to bring everybody along. They want everyone to join the revolution because of the righteousness of their cause. Well, I think that's fair, but also... Again, if we're going to take it seriously, I do think that, you know, this is a really important cause and we don't want it to get hurt. Um, You know, we can look at some of the what was, you know, the Sunrise Movement, again, got a lot of problems with them, but they had a very specific goal of trying to get action from leading Democrats. Um, They were actually trying to get action on the Green New Deal, which didn't happen. But in any case, they had a target. They targeted Joe Manchin for his vote. It was clear what they were doing. I do think one of the reasons that we're so uncomfortable with the, uh, you know, with the soup protest is that like, okay, the goal was attention. But like like Dana Fisher said in in the Washington Post, and she's pretty sympathetic to climate activists, but to what end? You know, there was no goal unre- that was other than conversation. And the action had nothing to do with the goal. It wasn't like they were chaining themselves to trees to protect trees. They were throwing soup on a painting because, I don't know, because reasons. Like, I saw somebody threw a pie in King Charles's wax figure's face. There, at least, you could say, like, okay, we're trying to get King Charles, who used to talk a lot about climate, to talk about climate again or something. But there's at least a 
a kind of some kind of nexus between what you're doing and what you want. So they they vandalized an oil lobby office. Okay, I get it. <laughs> right. It's funny because I was talking about this with my husband Kevin, and and he's like, this would be a great protest for exorbitant museum fees. <laughs> right. Well, there there's a nexus, right? right exactly. If it's like stop exploiting Van Gogh's mental health issues, this is like a Kanye situation. There, I would get it. But it's like we're attacking the art because climate. Right. It's just not going to convince anybody of anything. But I am betting that the next thing they do will be better. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Imagine a place of your own in your name, a place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia housing and see how home helps everyone. But what does better look like? We have a whole history of activism. And, you know, you already mentioned the people who chain themselves to trees and even the the guy who spray painted the oil lobby uh, front door. These were better. But, you know, there are other examples of better. And I know you've been writing about this for a long time. And you followed activism and the fallout from activism. So, like, what can we learn from the activists who came before? Well, one thing I always start out by saying, like, again, this sort of this thinker-doer distinction where uh, those of us who just write about it have to be cognizant that, you know, we're not always going to love everything that the people who are doing stuff uh, that they do. Um, That's part of the nature of doing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But (laughs) I did in 2015, I embedded with uh, an activist movement that certainly for the climate has been the most successful, uh, just unbelievably effective, smart, strategic movement. And this is Beyond Coal, which was inside the Sierra Club, um, which I think, you know, people have all kinds of ideas about what a Sierra Club activists look like, right? With the uh, the Birkenstocks or the, you know, the, you know, the hippies. But these guys were in an unbelievable mix of grassroots activism and, you know, legal, economic, political, hard-headed thinking, and where can we be most effective? And it was really incredible. They they chose an issue, like coal plants. They said, look, we're, uh, you know, they, they kind of looked at this rationally and said in 2010, um, you know, there's, we're on track to have another 200 coal plants in the United States. We have to have zero more. We need to stop them all. And we need to shut down the coal plants we've got, which at the time was completely insane. And they figured... We got to do it. What's the way to do it? And it's partly they said, well, look, 
people in neighborhoods with coal plants hate them. So part of what they did was really rallying opposition, showing the health effects, showing how it was really harming marginalized communities, um, some of that kind of traditional grassroots activism, but merged with, hey, these coal plants, if they have to comply with environmental regulations, they're going to become uneconomical. And they started rallying manufacturers and other electricity users to lobby the public utility commissions along with them. They started filing lawsuits on behalf of ratepayers. You know, and some of it was, I remember tagging along and thinking like, this isn't the kind of hey, hey, ho, ho kind of uh, activism that a lot of us you know, know and like to make fun of. But Mike, was there some some hey, hey, ho, ho portions of that? There was plenty of that. So it was a combination of hey, hey, ho, ho and serious substantive. And like, you know, badass women lawyers in like, you know, suits going and getting in the face of public utility commissioners and telling them to do their job and and their responsibility to support the least cost option, which in Oklahoma was wind and not coal, and having the Coke Industries, you know, factory on their side, you know, lobbying the, you know, Republican politicians to say like, hey, we want lower electricity prices too. We need less coal and more wind. And so that kind of strategic, political, big picture thinking, in a way, it's the kind of thing that a wonk would draw up. Because you're 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 trying to win hearts and minds, but you're also working the system. Exactly. Exactly. And you've got there's a goal which is very specific. It's not make everybody care about about the climate. It's shut down coal plants. There's an audience, which is both, you know, the public, particularly the affected public, but also the affected ratepayers and public utility commissions and higher politicians. And there's a theory of change, which is we are going to exploit coal's inefficiency, it's it's environmental problems, it's, you know, economic problems, and we are going to work the system. And it worked. They've cut coal in half. And and I should one other thing I should mention, it didn't hurt that they had like a ton of money from Michael Bloomberg, um, who didn't who didn't want credit for it all the time, right? Wow. It didn't have to be Michael Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg, the New York City mayor coming into Oklahoma and doing this. He just wrote the checks. That's awesome. And, you know, in some ways, again, this is a, the energy is a little bit different from food because it does, food does come down to people making individual choices. And to some extent, I think that makes hearts and minds be more important almost than working the system. And one of the parallels that I see. Uh, is with people buying fur. And man, it was probably, what, in the 80s? And that that fur, anti-fur activists started throwing fake blood on uh, people who were wearing real fur. And of course, occasionally they screwed up and threw it on people wearing convincing fake fur. But, <laughs> but other than that, it was a tactic where, you know, it was directed at exactly the object that the thing that they were trying to change. Um, and it was an object that wasn't particularly sympathetic to people, you know, rich people wearing fur coats. Um, 
and no real harm was done. I, I, my understanding was they could be cleaned. And, and I think that that extreme action, which is something that, I, you know, I don't think I, I ever would have engaged in, but I think that extreme action helped move the needle. And I think sometimes it's the fringe that does that. And when you're talking about, I mean, for fur, it comes down to, can we persuade individuals not to buy it and not to wear it? And for that particular protest, I think the answer was yes. I think it was successful. People's attitudes about fur changed because of that. It's absolutely true that those those radical activists moved public opinion. Um, I think, and similar, some of those, you know, some of those animal rights activists who went undercover into, uh, you know, the factory farms with their hidden cameras and, uh, you know, and exposed the, you know, the castration of pigs and the boiling alive of chickens and all kinds of really terrible things, um, you know, that, <laughs> the agriculture industry then went to uh, pass all kinds of laws to to prohibit these horrible break-ins. But again, I think, you know, that was one way of appealing to hearts and minds that, you know, it might not be the, you know, the kind of stuff that those of us who sit in our comfortable armchairs would do. Um, but one lesson, again, is that uh, the wonks don't always get to decide how the uh, how the activists do this stuff. I don't think the wonks um, ever get to decide. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. If we did, it would all look like Beyond Coal, and we'd all be very happy, and we'd be singing Tamar-esque Kumbaya. Um, but I think about, uh, about, for instance, the Keystone Pipeline fight, right? Which, you know— very targeted, right? We are going to stop this pipeline. And why are we doing it? Because very much like these, uh, these activists today, because oil is bad, just stop oil. Um, you know, even a little bit more oil coming from these, you know, particularly dirty tar sands is bad. And a lot of wonks were kind of saying, ew, you know, don't do this. This is silly. Yeah, oil's more a demand problem. We need a price on carbon. Um, we should be promoting renewable energy. Um, and I remember, obviously, I'm more the wonky guy, but I wrote a piece at the time in Time Magazine, and the headline was, I'm with the tree huggers. Um, and it wasn't because I thought that fighting the pipeline was that brilliant a climate strategy. You know, I thought it would have at most a sort of modest effect. But the activists had picked the fight. It was, at that point, it was, are you for it or are you against it? And there are always, like I refer to kind of those of us in the climate wonk world, that we were kind of armchair McClellans, right? Yes, we, we need to fight, but not here, not now. That's not exactly the right fight. Um, and you're never going to find exactly the right fight. At this point, the activists, they got to set that agenda. And it's up to people like us to say like, well, yeah, you know what? They're right. Oil is bad. And and there like there's some activists who through activism I think have got way more influence than we'll ever have. And I, you know, think about Greta Thunberg. And I, you know, I think that was a particularly effective way to to mobilize her age group by doing the the, the school strike. And by mobilizing them, she got attention 
for the cause in in an international way. And one of the things about a school strike is that it's basically victimless. No, no, nothing gets damaged. Nobody gets hurt. And I think that's an important part of it also. And it's funny, when, when Greta Thunberg was in New York, Speaking at the UN summit a few years ago, she happened to be staying at the home of a friend of mine, and I was the next person to use the the uh, the guest room that Greta Thunberg used. And I'm like using the towels, hoping it'll rub off or something, because <laughs> sometimes I do feel like, you know, sitting in your armchair and opining about this stuff feels a little bit like a second-class activity to the people who are out there on the front lines. Well, especially, look, again, you know, I'm all for armchairing. It's what we do. <laughs> it is what we do. Um, but uh, but I do think you, we at least have to take them seriously and on their terms, right? Greta Thunberg's audience was young people, mm-hmm. and she was remarkably successful in mobilizing young people. I think about, like, for instance, a piece I wrote about the, the Green New Deal, where I was, I was kind of critical— I mean, again, a bunch of stuff I'm critical, but this is this is one particular issue is the way the activists really insisted that the Green New Deal, the actual policy that they put up in Congress, it had to include things like universal health care and actually even a universal jobs program um, and a lot of, uh, you know, sort of social justice stuff that you know, those of us who are climate dorks wouldn't necessarily say are part of the climate story. And in fact... Made made it a completely unpassable bill to the extent it was, you know, even passable before that. If the Green New Deal, New Deal was unpopular, attaching it to these other left-wing demands made it less popular. But their goal was not everybody. That's not their, that wasn't their audience. They were trying to mobilize the left to make, for people, if you're a poverty activist, if you're a racial justice activist, they're saying the climate should be your issue. And also at the same time, some of these people were racial justice activists and you know, poverty activists telling climate activists, you need to make poverty and racial justice your issue. Their idea, you know, I would say like, you know, okay, great, you've mobilized the left, dot, 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 dot. When do you get your Green New Deal? <laughs> like what's the theory of change there? Um, but at least... Again, they had a target, and I think you have to take it seriously. And their theory of change is kind of revolution. And uh, yeah, that's, you know, they think this is going to be so popular that, uh, that you know, it'll inevitably happen after everybody realizes how unfair and how horrible the current system is. I'm maybe a little less sanguine than they are about that. But again, you got to take seriously. It's, you know, it's not a wonk theory of the case, but it's a theory of the case. Right. And, and, to stepping back from the systemic stuff and 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 the the policy stuff and and working the system these attempts to win hearts and minds are are important in the grand scheme of things and i think there are a few things that we can sort of pinpoint that that make them successful and you know one of them is that no innocent bystanders get hurt whether it's people or property that's not relevant to the to the cause, and I think that's why people reacted with with you know such opprobrium to uh, to throwing the soup on the Van Gogh because Van Gogh was an innocent bystander here. 
And and I think that's a, like you look at what happened with Black Lives Matter, right? Where and not to wade into the fight over what actually happened, but certainly to the extent there was looting and rioting, that was unhelpful to the cause. And you could see why people who did not like the cause in the first place very much emphasized the looting and rioting. And I also think that that um, righteousness sometimes it can be linked to the degree to which people are willing to take serious personal risk. Nothing bad was going to happen to those uh, activists who threw the soup or the mashed potatoes or the milk. In fact, when when you and I were talking about it, Kevin was about to take a shower and he comes out of the bathroom stark naked and he goes, they're not like the guy who stood in front of the tank at Tiananmen Square. I just want to say I'm glad it was not a video call. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> and, and like, the girls who are taking their hijabs off in Iran and the women who are cutting their hair and the people who are facing getting disappeared to protest, you know, Putin in Russia. I think that there's a degree of activism that is sort of above and beyond. And those people have my admiration. But I think even beyond that, I mean, it, it, I don't think we would say like a protest is, you know, it's certainly not illegitimate if you're not risking your life. But one thing that does make it compelling, even regardless of risk, is the extent to which you have skin in the game. Um, and there, like, I think of that, uh, what was she from Earth First, the woman who lived in the treehouse for a year to protect the tree. I mean, you, you got it, like... Say what you will, she cared about that tree and she made her point and she was obviously willing to sacrifice for that tree. Um, and again, as long as we're talking about things that make protests compelling, there was a very obvious nexus between I am sitting in this tree and I am trying to protect trees from bulldozers, right? And I think that's another really important thing that, uh, that you know, chucking soup at art because climate's more important than soup or art. It just, I don't know. It's just, okay. uh, it's not compelling. We have hit coal and pipelines and Russia and Iran and Tiananmen Square and a whole bunch of other issues. Let's bring it back to food to finish up this conversation. So where food meets climate, I think there, there really are some burning issues. Um, deforestation is, is one of them. Um, but, you know, I'm not sure that protesting a la the woman in the tree here in the United States is going to work in Bolsonaro's Brazil. For all I know, they're just going to come out and shoot you. And I also think that food waste is a huge issue. But, you know, everybody's trying to fix it. Nobody's pro-food waste. So maybe that's not an object of of. Uh, of protest. And also, I think animal welfare is is a huge issue. Um, but I think there, there actually was a downside to the people who were taping the instances of animal cruelty. And I'm in favor of bringing those to light. But there are lots of farmers who don't do that. And people were left with the idea that this was the norm. So I find myself a little bit stymied on food and climate and trying to find out where activism fits in. Well, look, I think as you mentioned earlier, hearts and minds are very important when it comes to uh, when it comes to food and climate because we want people to waste less food and 
eat less beef mostly, right? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of behavioral research about how best to, you know, change people's minds about those things, you know, and the, we've seen the meatless Monday, you know, and there's still a lot of vegan activism um, going on, particularly targeting industrial agriculture. Although, of course, it's hard um, when, first of all, we've talked about how in many ways industrial agriculture can be less of a climate problem than say, organic agriculture or other low-yield forms of agriculture. Um, but also, like, there are farms everywhere where, you know, it's, it's tough to actually, you know, there's, there's no bridge to shut down when it's, uh, you know, when, when agriculture is, is spread out all over the country and all over the world. To me, some of this uh, reflects sort of the limits of activism in solving some of these problems, um, you had talked earlier about about the uh, you know those those crazy guys from people for the ethical treatment of animals who used to throw blood on on people's fur coats. Well, the guy who was in charge of those campaigns, Bruce Friedrich, you know he he would agree with you that they were effective in sort of changing people's minds about fur, but they were not effective in reducing the suffering of animals around the world. You know, people are eating more animals and exploiting more animals and abusing more animals than ever. And he is now the head of the Good Food Institute trying to solve this problem by changing people's foods instead of pe changing people's minds. He's in charge of trying to, you know, promote support for alternative proteins, the fake meat, the fake dairy. Um, Josh Balk, who was, uh, who was one of those original Humane Society activists who went undercover um, and uh, exposed the horrible conditions in the chicken farms, um, he has helped start Just Egg, you know, which is, uh, you know, one of the basically trying to replace chickens in the egg process. Um, but he's also at the Humane Society. Now what he works on is trying to negotiate with corporations to be better to their animals um, and trying to push ballot initiatives, working through the political process like this. Uh, he was responsible for that thing in, in California where they're supposed to treat pigs better. Do you think this could be a function of them just getting older <laughs> and activism <laughs> is for young people? <laughs> Well, I think they all, not just older, but wiser, right? They realized that what they were doing wasn't working. And I think if you look at, you know, take the big climate success that we've all seen in the, in the United States, the biggest one pretty much since the climate movement started, um, other than beyond coal, um, was the Inflation Reduction Act, right? And that was a complete inside game. It wasn't a hey, hey, ho, ho. It was a let's get 50 Democrats in the Senate and a slim Democratic majority in Congress. And then let's not talk about climate. Let's not try to change anybody's mind about climate. Let's call it an inflation bill so that people don't know we're doing climate policy. Um, it's sort of the opposite of the activist model where first you have to convince everybody and, uh, and only then after the popular groundswell do you get action. This is the shh, don't tell anyone we're trying to save the climate. I think it was in Sweden where they changed all the school menus to be more, to reflect more climate-friendly food choices, but they didn't tell anybody. This is exactly the danger. Here we are in this, in this polarized world and doing this kind of thing, I think, could just make everything more polarized. I did a quick 
Twitter poll on this to see if people thought that this was this the soup throwing was going to be a win for the climate or or a loss. And it ran about, you know, two thirds to three quarters saying it was a loss and the rest saying it was a win. But some of the comments I got, one guy said, well, now I know I'm going to be driving a gas car for the rest of my life because he was so put off by this. And, you know, chances are that guy was going to be driving a gas car anyway. And I'll check back with him in five years when electric cars are a lot less expensive. <laughs> I think food is in some ways a special case because because it is so reliant on individual choices. Well, look, it's it's interesting that this message that we've heard so often in the climate movement among climate activists in the last few years has been to downplay the importance of individual actions, right? That only politics matters, that only corporations matter. We don't care if you recycle. We're not going to make you feel bad about your diet. Um, what matters is going after Exxon and, uh, you know, going after Burger King. But, you know, Exxon didn't make you drive that Ford Explorer to the mall. And and Burger King is not forcing you to, uh, you know, to eat three burgers a week like the average American does. And so I think, you know, our emissions are us. And I think it's going to be really important, first of all, that we do reach people's hearts and minds enough that they're, you know, willing to make these kind of, you can call them sacrifices. Um, although, I think it'll probably be more important, as you've seen with with solar, and hopefully you will see someday with alternative proteins to improve the technology so it feels less like a sacrifice. But what's really important, I think, is to avoid creating this kind of anti-climate movement. Um, these people who are going to say, you know, you see them anytime somebody talks about the Green New Deal, it's like, you'll take my cheeseburger out of my cold, dead hands. We talked about this in the culture war issue, um, that it is going to be like, if we have to reduce our beef consumption 50% in the United States by 2050, it's going to be really hard if half the country is doubling their beef consumption just to piss off the activists. So I do think this polarization that you talk about is really important. And while activism clearly has a role, it also has a responsibility. You know, the activists ought to acknowledge that when they do infuriate people and alienate people, that can have a cost to the climate. And I think the bottom line for me here is that I kind of think that those protests have a better shot at changing institutional or governmental action than they do individual choices. And in food, you have to change individual choices. Burger King is selling people the food that they want. And if you want to change the landscape, you have to change what people want. And that's a tall order, even for an activist. Climavores is a production of Postscript Media. And we want to know what you're thinking about, what you care about. Those are the things that we want to address on this show. So give us a call at 508-377-3449 or email us at climavores at postscriptaudio.com. The show is hosted by me, 
Tamar Haspel. And me, Michael Grunwald. Executive producers are Scott Clavenna and Stephen Lacey. Senior editor is Ann Bailey. Managing producer is Cecily Mesa-Martinez. Dalvin Abouage is the associate producer. Engineering by Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfranc. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks so much for all the awesome ratings. Uh, You can keep them coming on Apple Podcasts or rate us on Spotify. We're also streaming on Amazon Music. And if you have a climate-conscious foodie in your life, please give them a link. I hope they'll join you and us next week. 